Welcome to the Backyard Professor Responds. I found a second video of Book of Mormon Central where they are proposing discovering the historical authenticity of the Book of Abraham. And I believe it's pure pseudo-scholarship. So I was going to make a fairly short response, but the evidences I found in order to demonstrate they do produce pseudo-scholarship is really important because it demonstrates, again, and I know it sounds like a broken record, I'm well aware of that, but they continually take things out of context and their scholarship just sucks. Let's take a look at the first clip. Generally speaking, there are three interlocking issues people encounter when they learn about the controversy surrounding the Book of Abraham. First, there's the question of the papyri Joseph Smith acquired and how he translated them. Second, there's the question of Joseph Smith's explanations of three facsimiles published along with the text of the Book of Abraham. And third, there's the question of the historical believability of the text itself. These issues are too complicated to cover in just one video. A good place to start to learn more is a gospel topics essay published by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints titled Translation and Historicity of the Book of Abraham. Two items that I would like to note that are truly crucial to grasping the importance of that essay on the church's official internet website. Number one, the former Book of Abraham scholar and farms scholar Brian Hauglid has come out and denounced that essay as being not valid. The second item that, of course, Book of Mormon Central will truly ignore and never mention, but which we need to be aware of, is Robert Rittner himself, who was John Gee's teacher, has written a response to just that essay, and he has shown it is a fruitless attempt at discovering and demonstrating historical authenticity with the Book of Abraham. Let's take a look at the next slide. This video is just going to focus on the last issue, the historical believability of the text of the Book of Abraham. Is there any evidence that it preserves authentic ancient writings from the biblical prophet and patriarch Abraham? And the answer to that is no. There is no scholarship that shows the historical Abraham. In fact, critical biblical scholarship has demonstrated fundamentally the entire lack of archaeological evidence of support even for the figure of Abraham, let alone any type of book that he might have written. We do know that all of the later Abraham pseudepigrapha, the Testament of Abraham, the 
apocalypse of Abraham. Those aren't history of a historical personal. Those are more religious, faith-promoting, much later, centuries, if not millennial later, spiritual teachings of someone else. Let's take another look at another clip. Do we have any evidence for what's depicted in the first chapter of the book of Abraham? Yes, we do. No, we don't. This is entirely misguided, and it is highly misleading. This is why I'm responding, and this is one of the reasons why I stopped being an apologist. Let's take a look at another clip. While most scholars in the past and today believe Abraham's Ur was located at a site in what is today's southern Iraq, a good case has been made by some scholars for locating it in what is today's southern Turkey or northern Syria. While the exact site of Abraham's Ur is still unknown, a number of plausible candidates have been proposed in the general area near the Turkish-Syrian border. Archaeological discoveries confirm that during Abraham's day, there was a discernible measure of Egyptian culture, trade, and possibly even military presence in Syria-Palestine. Furthermore, Egyptologists recognize that the ancient Egyptians during Abraham's day did in fact practice human sacrifice, or more properly, sanctioned killing or ritual violence against enemies of Egypt or This is pure bunk as we will see later on in this program. For one thing, they ignore Christopher Woods, who is the world expert of the Ur issue with Abraham and ancient Mesopotamia or Syria or wherever they find it up in Turkey in the north or in the south. He has a chapter in Robert Rittner's complete edition of the Joseph Smith papyri, and he shows how the Ur issue simply does not work. You notice Book of Mormon Central says, well, some scholars have said this, and so on and so forth. The only scholars that are attempting to find a historical Abraham for the Book of Abraham are the two lonely Mormon scholars, John Gee and Kerry Moulstein. No other scholars are saying what these two are saying. None of them. Now, I have a pile of books here because I was going to read off the names of the scholars, but this video is going to be long enough as it is. Let it be known, though, I don't know of any other scholars that agree with this attempting historical authentic authentication of the Book of Abraham from the Mormon scholars. Let's take a look at another slide. rebels against the king. Even the names of gods mentioned in the book of Abraham appear to have external confirmation. The god Elkanah, for example, is very likely a shortened form of the Canaanite deity name Elkoneh Haaretz, or God who created the earth. This god was worshipped as Elkunirshav by the ancient Hittites living in Anatolia. 
There is also evidence that the other gods mentioned in the text, Libna, Mamakra, Korash, and Pharaoh, were anciently worshipped in the This is pure balderdash, as we are about to see. Let's take a look at another slide. In this same area. Finally, the name Olishem, mentioned in the Book of Abraham, has been plausibly identified with a location called Ulisum or Ulishum, mentioned in an inscription of an ancient Akkadian king named Naram-Sin. This Ulisum is believed to be located somewhere in southern Turkey, not far from the Syrian border, precisely the same location where some scholars believe that Abraham lived. So scholars have been able to piece together a plausible ancient time, location, and cultural setting for the first chapter in the book of Abraham. Continue. That is pure bunk. There is no historical authenticity of anything about the first chapter in the book of Abraham. Now, the advantage that we have today and which apologists like Book of Mormon Central are completely ignoring, except for just naming the names, is that we have a full historical contextual response by the actual Egyptologists who trained the Mormon Egyptologists and with their renegade Mormon scholarship the other Egyptologists are taking exception to this misuse of their line of living. And it doesn't please them, and very properly so. They are quite angry in some respects. And in other respects, they're more bemused. They're more incredulous that anybody takes the Mormon scholarship on the book of Abraham seriously. And I've got great evidence on this. Let's take a look at another slide. Those are all gibberish and don't exist and have nothing to do with anything Egyptian whatsoever and never did. Okay, so that's that's five, six, seven, and eight, which which are the canopic jars, according to you, uh, Dr. Uh, Rittner. Yes, um, yes, according to me and everyone else. <laughs> and and, it, and so Joseph names them God, idolatrous gods, Elkanah, Libna, Makmara, and Korash. Really quickly, RFM, do we have any idea where those names come from? Do they appear like a town next door to Joseph or, you know, some apocryphal writing that he read? Do, do you know of any attempt to sort of figure out where he got those names? This has been a longstanding hobby of Mormon apologists to try and come up with some connection to either a place name, a person name, or pretty much any name you could come up with in any language, whether it's Egyptian or Mesopotamian or Hittite or Hebrew, and to come up with something in some other language at some other time that sort of sounds like one of these names and then to proclaim it as a bullseye. And? Well, uh, I guess then it depends upon uh, your own perspective. John Gee has recently published a paper on the four sons of Horus, 
uh, which are pictured there as five, six, seven, and eight, in which he engages in that exercise. He published it at the Interpreter Journal, the online journal with the editor, Daniel C. Peterson. And this is in the past two weeks that this came out. And he is so taken by the connections that he has managed to draw with Hittite and Mesopotamian names that he has proclaimed in the conclusion that the odds of Joseph Smith guessing these four names correctly are astronomical. And as he puts it, they are equivalent to winning the Powerball lottery three weeks in a row. Uh, wow, Dr. Rittner, I guess, I guess a checkmate uh, on you by, by John Gee. You know, I'm just, I'm being silly. Do you have a response to John Gee's assertions there? Uh, you already used the word gibberish. Um, uh, my honest reaction? That's just pathetic. Oh no, tell us why. Uh, these are extremely well-known figures. The names are extremely well-known. We have surviving three-dimensional examples of these. Almost every museum, and mine has multiple copies. The Metropolitan has multiple copies. Every regional museum, any museum that has Egyptian objects probably has some of these. Most of these have the name and hieroglyphs written right on them. I don't have to make it up. It's right there. Um, John Gee knows that. He's, he has had training, even though he goes out of his way to ignore it and pervert it at every opportunity. Uh, in no case were these jars ever, ever associated with the Hittites or Mesopotamia. And if you can weasel out some, and the operative word is weasel, some kind of a connection to some far-flung place, that's meaningless because these jars never had anything to do with it. It doesn't make any difference. If, if you can find an Elkina coming out of Kentucky, that doesn't make it connected to a jar that has a known name and a known function and was never connected with that name in any context in the real world where I live, but John Gee does not. I would argue that's pretty straightforward. Now, this interview that I'm sharing with you in a response to the Book of Mormon Central claims on the historical authenticating evidences, they think, for the Book of Abraham, was done a few years back, and both John DeLynn and Radio Free Mormon were able to interview the Western Hemisphere's greatest Egyptologist, Robert Rittner, and they discussed in detail all of John Gee's and Kerry Molstein's arguments, which this particular Book of Mormon Central video discussed. And so... What this is going to demonstrate is the vast amount of background material, the vast amount of the actual Egyptological linguistic materials that both Gee and Molstein not only confuse and get wrong and mistranslate, but which also they flat leave out in order to go chasing will-o'-wisps off into a completely irrelevant country or culture, such as Mesopotamia, 
or the Assyrians. But that's not where the book of Abraham is coming in. It's with Egypt that the story of Abraham has to do. But they can't find authenticating names in Egyptian in Joseph Smith's explanations. He got none of the names of the four sons of Horus correct. And yes, this is soundly and properly refuted by the greatest Western Hemisphere Egyptologist, John Gee's own teacher. Let's take a look at another clip. And Dr. Ridner, you're saying all of these men should have known better. Yes. Well, they, I, I, what I'm actually saying is they did know better. Yeah. And, you know, for whatever reason, they chose not to express that yeah. and to look for ways to argue against what's obvious. Um, when I worked on the Book of Abraham, the reaction by my colleagues was, that stuff is ridiculous. Why bother? No one would take that seriously. None of my colleagues. I mean, it's dismissible immediately, which is why all the way back to the Spalding book, which we'll eventually talk about, I'm sure, uh, this has been dismissed out of hand by everyone. And it, it, when I was first considering publishing the book and the idea was sent to a colleague to see whether the Institute would publish it. The response back was why waste your time with something like this. It's ridiculous. I mean, yeah. this, this is coming out of Germany. The remark was, it's just, why bother? I mean, it's so, it's so completely absurd that no one would give it even five seconds of time. So no Egyptologist real Egyptologist, would spend three seconds reading John Gee's article on Alkena. They wouldn't bother. I've only looked at it because I've been drawn into this and therefore uh, because I was publishing the, the Egyptian manuscript. But if, but if I had not been asked to read the actual papyrus, I wouldn't have spent a second on anything John Gee ever wrote. I think that's pretty clear. <laughs> Very clear to everyone except Book of Mormon Central, who apparently has not got the memo. Let's go to the next video clip. Um, John Gee wants to have it both ways. He tells his audiences that no one can critique or understand this document unless they have a degree in Egyptologist like him. But he won't discuss it with me because I have a degree in Egyptology like him. You know, which is it, John? Um, you're going to respond to me or you're not going to respond to me. If you don't want to respond to me because you don't have the facts, then don't tell people or pretend to people that you do. Because quite honestly, John, you don't. Hmm. 
Now, this is the updated information that Book of Mormon Central does not allow their readers to know about unless you've done some serious internet researching on this whole issue. And my suspicion is the vast majority of the crowd who watches Book of Mormon Central is satisfied with what they see without actually asking, but is their material valid? And we're nowhere near over yet. It actually gets worse. Let's take a look at the next clip. Slides for facsimile. Yes, if I think the next thing is going to be on the um, the four so sons of Horus. So here we can actually see who the four sons of Horus are, and so you can see them there drawn. This is from just pulled from Wikipedia page. So this is so commonly known that anyone can check this. You don't have to take my and it's this is not my personal interpretation. Uh, it is well known, the Egyptians texts survive, which describe it specifically. And there are the gods, and there are their actual names that you can read. Imseti, which is the human-headed one. Duamutef, who is the jackal-headed one. Hapi, who is the baboon-headed one. And Kebesinuef, who is the... Uh, a falcon-headed one. So there's not Elkina, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We have these names. We absolutely have these names. Anyone who wants to can look up Four Sons of Horus right now on the internet and read everything you'd want and see example after example after example. You don't need to take my word for it. And any attempt to make them be something connected to the Hittites is bizarre, just bizarre. If you go to the next slide, this is Book of the Dead 151, which is a major spell that is designed. Now, this would have been in a papyrus that would have been almost certainly in one of the papyri that Joseph Smith bought whether it was, it survived, and I did not survive in the copy that we still have. But it would have been as one of those, the, the papyrus number two would have, or the Tasherit men would have had it. And so we get statements, to be said by Kebesenuef. So this is what the so-called idolatrous God actually is. This is the one with the falcon head. I am your son, O Osiris, so-and-so. Here would be whore. I have come to be your magical protection. I unite for you your bones and assemble for you your members. I have brought to you your heart. I have put it for you as a seat in your body. I have preserved the, your house after you, for you are alive forever. To be said by the baboon one, I am happy, O fill in the blank here. I have come that I may be your magical protection. I have attached for you your head and your limbs. I have smitten for you your enemies beneath you while you are alive forever. To be said by Duamutef, who is the jackal-headed one. I, O Osiris, I am your son Horus, your beloved. I have come that I may save my father Osiris 
from him who did him harm, that is the God said. I put him beneath your feet forever. If you trample something down, that means you have control over it. And here you're invoking Osiris, which means you're at the same time invoking the dead man who is now merged with and a form of Osiris. To be said by Imseti, that's the human-headed one. I am your son, oh, fill in the blank here. I have come that I may be your magical protection. I preserve your house, abiding, abiding as Ptah, as commanded, that's the craftsman god at Memphis, as Ray, the sun god himself, has commanded. Then we have directions. Lo, one shall use this only when he is pure and spotless without eating goats or fish or going near women. In other words, you had to be ritually pure. After bread and burnt incense have been offered, no human sacrifice here food offerings and incense. That's normal. That's what Egyptians offer, not humans, uh, for the, to these gods. Ever, as for every blessed one for whom this is used, he shall be a sacred god who is in the god's domain, and he shall not be kept away from any gate of the west. The Egyptians believed the underworld was in the west because that's where the sun set. He shall be a follower of Osiris wherever he goes. A truly excellent spell proved millions of times. So that's what's going on in that scene. Now, I want to challenge Book of Mormon Central to share with us their understanding of the actual Egyptology of those four sons of Horus that Joseph Smith completely misunderstood and entirely misnamed as Elkanah and Libna and Mamakra and all of the other ones. We are now beginning to learn the actual Egyptology and Egyptian meaning and understanding, and it's nothing like what Joseph Smith said. Let's take a look at the next slide. If Hugh Nibley had been honest, he would have reproduced Book of the Dead 151 and said, this is what this scene is about. I have to admit, RFM, doesn't that kind of sound a little bit like proxy work for the dead when, when you hear him read that? Like what you would hear right before a, a Mormon temple, you know, baptism for the dead or, or even an endowment ceremony, sort of this there's a little bit of ritualistic language that reminds me of the temple ceremony. Do you feel the same way, RFM? Well, I do, but I also have to caution myself that when my knowledge of ritual is limited pretty much to what I've experienced in the LDS temple, it is very common for me, as it is probably for most people, to interpret any other kind of ritualistic ideas from Egypt or anywhere else in terms of what it is that I already understand. So I'm trying to avoid that. But I did have a similar feeling. To you. So, I just don't find Book of Mormon Central evidences convincing at all. Let's take another look at another slide. Can yeah. I say something here about Please. these four sons of horse? Because I need to get another 
another um, point in here for Joseph Smith, in addition to the one semi-point for the God of Pharaoh. Is it correct? Because in facsimile two, the four sons of Horus show up again in the hypocephalus there under figure six. And there, Joseph Smith translates that as representing this earth in its four quarters. Is it true that one of the interpretations or understandings about the four sons of Horus is that they could represent the four cardinal directions? Huh. And so far as they are the number four, then yes, any anytime you use the number four, you can always say that that kind of that, that has a connotation of the four directions. As far as Hugh Nibley is concerned, and I learned at their knees, John Gee's concerned, Carrie Muelstein's concerned, etc. The four sons of Horus being identified by Joseph Smith as representing the earth in its four quarters is presented as being the direct hit absolute bullseye that Joseph Smith got right in his interpretation of facsimile too. And I'm really, really disappointed to hear that you're telling me that's not necessarily the case. I'm telling you, if you got it right, that they are the number four. <laughs> the symbolism of four for the four corners is universal. Okay, I'm taking that as a hit then. Yeah. <laughs> So this is one, this is one, maybe it's a half of one, along with half of one for Pharaoh and uh, the crocodile god, Sobek. I'm going to add those together. I'm going to give me a big one right there. Okay. okay. One out of 12. Good job. Good job, John Gee. Well, and, well actually, know. actually, it's one out of a lot more than that, because we had to go into facsimile two, which has a lot more uh, figures in it than just figure one or facsimile that's, one. Believe it or not, that's coming up. And there, folks, is the supposed strongest bullseye and the impression of an actual Egyptologist not so strong. But this just continually degrades for Mormon Egyptological apologetics. Let's take a look at another slide. Well, in the various articles done by John Gee, attempting to justify the legitimacy of Smith's interpretation of facsimile one, he states that there is an Egyptian papyrus that links the name Abraham to this scene. And that is even cited in the church's statement, the official online statement, to which I responded uh, a number of years ago. And that is a papyrus from Leiden, which is a magical papyrus. It's third century, uh, I believe, AD. So it is much, much later than the book of Abraham supposedly is said to be. It is much later than the actual papyrus uh, that we've got for the book of Abraham. So if it, is a, if it is connected, it would be after the book of Abraham, not before it. But the problem is, let's actually look at it and see what it is. 
it has nothing whatsoever to do with this tale of Abraham. And the, when one looks at the translation, and I've lost it off my screen now. Uh, can we pull it up? Yeah, yeah. So this, this is a picture of what? Tell our listeners. This is a picture of the uh, uh, Leiden papyrus, otherwise known as the uh, Papyri Greci Magikai, the Greek magical papyrus number 12, lines 474 to 79. It also has a number, as you can see there, PDM for for Papiri Demotiki Magikai, because this is a manuscript that is written both in Egyptian and Greek. It's written by Egyptian scribes who are fluent in both the Greek script and the Egyptian script. And what this is, is a sex spell. This is a love spell to force a woman to have sex with you. And this is part of a manual that would be like a cookbook, you know, a book of magical spells. If, if you wanted to, to, to have a woman come to you, you'd, you'd, go through and flip, you'd go through the papyrus and find this. And it's very fragmentary. It's largely broken away. But the parts of it that survive say you bring a seal, something of copper, and a lion, and a mummy, and Anubis, while they seek something with a scarab, and then you recite magical words. These are abracadabra words that don't mean anything even in Egyptian. Adio orich tambito Abraham huat planio, etc., etc., and and uh, and the whole soul for her fill in the her name, whom then fill in the name of her mother, the female, and unfortunately your picture of. My picture, uh, your picture is blocking my screen here. The female body of her fill in her name, who so and so bore. I conjure by a god whose name is broken to inflame her, her name again here, her mother's name there. Write these words together with this picture on a new papyrus, and you get the scene of the lion bed with the mummy of Osiris and Anubis, who had been described as what you write. So there you have in the text an actual mention, although it's broken, of the lion bed, the mummy, uh, and the reason for this is this is that moment in which Osiris comes to life and impregnates Isis. And that's what you want to happen to this woman, that she will be inflamed in the same way by invoking this image. And you'll notice Abraham is in there, but he is not obviously part of a story unless there's some interesting, really exciting part that Joseph Smith left out, and I'd like to read that part. But instead here, it's invoked just because it's a magical name. 
the Egyptians made use of every god imaginable. The Egyptians evoked Mesopotamian names, Greek names. Uh, they even invoke Exodus and invoke Yahweh, one of the most popular gods to mention in this papyrus is Yao, which is a form of Yahweh's, because the Egyptians accept all gods. They never persecuted any god. They accepted every god, including the ones who persecuted Egyptians. So the, what they did is every wise man, they would also put their name because they thought they had power. So it is here, Egyptians invoking the name of Abraham as a wise man. But this is done in the Roman period. What this shows you guys is that it's really dangerous to rely on John Gee's Egyptology and Kerry Mulstein's Egyptology because they don't have a clue what they're doing. And it actually gets worse. Let's take a look at the next slide. Mormon apologetics. This has the word Abraham. It is a, so it is here in a spell that shows the lion bed. But it's the lion bed that's used like the lion bed is used all over the place. It has nothing to do with the book of Abraham. It's simply fortuitous that it's, it's a coincidence that it, has, it happens to be the same scene that's on the Joseph Smith papyrus because nothing about this papyrus relates to the story of Abraham in Egypt. But as an apologist, Abraham, as a Mormon apologist, Abraham is here simply because he's a magical name, and it's no more significant than the other, oh, oh, gaba, baba, baba, etc. That's there as, as abracadabra. And yes, it's been mentioned specifically by John Gee repeatedly as a connection, showing that Abraham and the lion bed are related. The, the abracadabra here isn't, is not invoking the lion bed. It's merely a magical power to make the woman come and jump on your body. Apologetics is powerless against actual Egyptological knowledge. The Mormon apologists who appear to me to be so desperate as to try to find any kind of link whatsoever to Abraham with the Egyptian papyri, it's a losing battle. Let's take a look at another slide. We're nowhere near done yet. Leave that before we leave that. I have to bring up the fact that I was disappointed in Carrie Muelstein, who's one of the two preeminent Egyptologist apologists for Mormonism in the book of Abraham. And he is on record in a video, and you probably know which one I'm talking about. It may have been a response to your video that you did initially in 2002 or so, but or 2012. 
But he is on record as saying, referring to the Leiden manuscript, that it contains the name Abraham and that actually translated the words are Abraham is upon the lion couch. Have you heard him actually say that? Because I have. No, I have not. We, we, we have to get the audio. Especially intriguing is a lion couch scene, roughly contemporary to the Joseph Smith papyri that mentions Abraham. The Leiden demotic papyrus, um, which dates to about the same time frame and again from roughly the same location, it has a lion couch scene, and we don't have the entire uh, portion of the papyrus left, but there is definitely a lion couch scene with the name Abraham right below it. it. It is associated somehow with that graphic. In there is a lion couch scene. It's actually part of a love charm. And the text says, it's got a picture of a man on a lion couch, and the text says, this, or Abraham upon his couch. By the way, in the three-part piece that Bill Reel and I did in a separate podcast. Uh, it's about a year and a half ago. We do play the audio there. So it is of record. And he did say that. Um, but I wanted to get your take on that. People on record now is saying something I don't like having to do, but I will. Kerry uh, Milstein was trained at UCLA. Uh, I know from the professors who taught him there that he was not taught late Egyptian hieratic nor was he taught demotic. So he, can, he has not been tamed, trained in the script in which the book of Abraham, quote unquote, or the uh, breathing permit of horror was written. So where he made an attempt to critique and evaluate my transcription and understanding of that document as opposed to Michael Rhodes. He doesn't actually have the background to make that decision. He might know Middle Egyptian hieratic. It's very, very different. Michael Rhodes couldn't read uh, Ptolemaic hieratic if his life depended upon. I mean, it, that he's not been trained. And our listeners don't know who Michael Rhodes is. I'm guessing many of them uh, don't. He, he produced a book in competition with mine uh, I was denied access to seeing the papyrus, actually. The, I, I petitioned to see the church before I ever started working on the papyri. I was told I could not, and they got Michael Rhodes to do a book instead. And Michael Rhodes basically recycled the translation of Hugh Nibley from many years before. Um, but more to the point, to answer the question, RFM, that you just asked me, Demotic is a highly specialized field within Egyptology. It is a sub-subspecialty. Most of my colleagues, 80%, cannot read a word of Demotic. Kerry was never trained in Demotic. So, so he cannot read the script that he has said that you're telling me he is describing. Demotic is tough. That is my specialty. And when I got my PhD, you have to, at Chicago, sight read a text that is suddenly handed to you out of nowhere 
And the text I was handed happened to be this papyrus. It's extremely complicated. And this is, n this is not merely complicated demotic. It's Roman period demotic. And there are three kinds of demotic because it changes over time radically. So most people who read demotic don't read Roman period demotic either. But that's my fort. That's my strong point. So I was handed the very thing we are now talking about, thrust in front of me and said, keep going until I tell you to stop. And I transliterated it and read it aloud in front of a group of who individuals who would be my peers. And I got honors because I read it flawlessly. So that I can do. Did you get to the part where it says Abraham upon the lion couch? Um, yes, unfortunately, that section is broken. The word lion is there, who is there, but they're not even in the same sentence. Does that answer your question? I th if I'm understanding you correctly, um, Carrie Muelstein was engaged in a little bit of um, maybe wishful misrepresentation of what the actual translation is. That is correct. And... And I guess I want to ask the same question we asked earlier, whether it's Guy or Mulstein or, or whoever was involved in, in discussing this, putting this forward as some type of proof. In your view, Dr. Rittner, did they know better? Do they know better? They should. Yes, I'm sure they do. Yeah. This is absolutely damning to LDS apologetics on the Book of Abraham and translating Egyptian. Uh, I, I have no further reason to take much of anything they ever say or have said seriously at all. And it continues. <laughs> Let's take a look at the next clip. This is incredible. to it well absolutely just just first of all lest we forget about this um it, it's clear that smith's reconstruction of the story of abraham in the book of abraham with the aborted sacrifice of him is largely a carbon copy of what you have in the biblical text where abraham has is confronted with a sacrifice that is also aborted, but of his son, Isaac. And the reason uh, where, again, in both cases, Yahweh steps in, in both of those stories and prevents the, what would be murder. But it's important to note that now, as we are speaking in Egypt, there is an Abrahamic tradition, which is alive and well and being celebrated as we speak because we are in the time of the major festival for the Islamic world, which is the Eid al-Adha, which is the festival of sacrifice. And that celebrates the permission by Yahweh to Abraham to not kill his son Isaac. That is the critical, the most important celebration in the Islamic world. Now, what the reason for, for bringing that up is that if there were post-biblical traditions of Abraham, 
you would expect to find a reflex of that in the continuing cultures of the Near East. They haven't forgotten everything. And the Abraham story is not only alive and kicking, it's predominant. It is most, it is more important than Moses in the current world of Egypt. And yet there is not one trace, not a scintilla, not a, any reflection of the book of Abraham tradition, whereas the biblical tradition is extremely predominant. So one has to wonder if there were a second story, why is it that it is not enshrined in living testimony when Abrahamic lore is so strong? And that brings up the question of the Leiden papyrus where there was a supposed example of the, of the book of Abraham tradition in a Greco-Roman document, in a document. Now we're beginning to see what the real background is. And it's not what the Mormon apologists have been telling us at all. It's nothing like what Joseph Smith gave us from his imagined Egyptological point of view. It stands or falls on the Egyptological point of view because this is the nature of the papyri. This is the nature of Joseph Smith's description of his mission with the papyri. But now it gets brutally ugly. For the miscontexting and the, I hate to put it this way, but the deliberate deception of LDS apologists about what the Egyptologists have really said and shown and how the ridiculous stupidity of the LDS apologetic arguments has come to the fore. And we actually learned the rest of the story that LDS apologetics they aren't worth spit. Let's take a look at another clip. In a document from, uh, this is something else I want to point out. I, I went back and checked the date. I was following the church's remark in their statement that it was third century, this Leiden papyrus. It's actually fourth century. So it's, a hundred years even more remote from the time when Abraham was supposed to have existed. But the problem is, if it's being reflected there, why don't we see it somewhere else and we don't? It's not there, it's, it's not in the Islamic tradition, the Hebrew tradition, or the various varieties of Christian traditions. So that is a problem, especially when we're seeing Abraham celebrated literally as we speak. I spoke one slide too soon, or perhaps two slides too soon, but we recognize with this masterful response and expose of the incompetence of the LDS apologetic Egyptological authentication of the Book of Abraham, the pure power of actual Egyptology. Let's take a look. 
only that, and I know we're going to get into the apologetics relating to the book of Abraham at a set, uh, but acknowledging everything that Dr. Rittner has said is absolutely accurate. What the apologists tend to do is they tend to look at a different set of legends relating to Abraham's attempted sacrifice in Babylon when he was thrown into a furnace, very much like the story of the, the Hebrew children that we read about in Daniel. And he was saved. May I interject there? Oh, please do. Because I've I've discussed that specifically, and I heard him. I heard John Gee refer to that in a podcast this morning that I was asked to listen to. The problem with that is that that has nothing whatsoever to do with the patriarch Abraham, and John Gee knows that. That particular Coptic story to which he refers is set in Mesopotamia. And it is not of the patriarch Abraham, but of Saint Abraham of the town of Arbala, which is the modern Iraqi city of Irbil. And the pharaoh in that, the Ford pharaoh is being used as a title, not a personal name. And he is not an Egyptian king. The word the, the Coptic word there, paro, is the descendant of the earlier Egyptian word pharaoh, and paro, in that Coptic text which I have read, is simply a designation that means king. It's the same term that you would use for the Roman emperor, the king of Persia, or anywhere else, so it's not distinct to Egypt. So the king who burns the, this saint, this is taking place under the Sasanian Empire, all in Mesopotamia, with a Sasanian Persian ruler punishing a local Iranian saint who is Syriac, a Jacobite. This has nothing to do with Egypt whatsoever. It's merely a saint's tale from Iraq that has been copied over into the Egyptian tradition. But it's not antiquity. It's not the patriarch Abraham. And it has nothing to do with that, except that the saint happens to have the same name. So this evidence is irrelevant. And it was published accurately that the king referred to as Shapur II of Persia. We know precisely who this is. And the text specifically says that his territory of control is Mesopotamia. It couldn't be more specific. Presenting this as John Gee did in a feshrift is a dishonor to the person to whom it was presented. And it is a complete, absolutely a complete distortion of facts that have been known since, since 1908 when it was properly published. And the 1908 publication is accurate and what John Gee does with it is com a complete fabrication. And he even admits that everyone else has recognized that it's some Persian king named Shapur. Well, it's not some Persian king. It's specifically Shapur II in Mesopotamia, no relation to Egypt. End of story. If I were Book of Mormon Central, I would be looking for a new Egyptologist. This is a complete wipeout. But we're not done. Truly. Let's take a look. We've got more. This is a complete wipeout. 
that, that uh, last week, I think it was, uh, the Fair Mormon group does a podcast and they had an interview. There was a lady who did an interview with John Gee and he was presenting a number of comments about the book of Abraham, a number of apologetic evidences for the book of Abraham. And in the middle of this conversation, he, refer, he refers to Dr. Robert Rittner in the context of talking about sacrifice, specifically human sacrifice among the ancient Egyptians. It was uh, John Gee's position and still remains his position that actually the ancient Egyptians did perform human sacrifices. And so therefore the narrative in the book of Abraham is correct as to time and place talking as it does about human sacrifices. He notes that Dr. Robert Rittner states that there is or was no human sacrifice in ancient Egypt. But then John Gee says that Dr. Rittner has apparently forgotten what he wrote in his doctoral dissertation in which Robert Rittner, Dr. Rittner stated there that there was such a thing as human sacrifice in ancient Egypt. And then he, he said that, of course, somewhat facetiously, uh, implying that Dr. Rittner has reversed his position from his doctoral dissertation to what he's claiming now. And this is important because when, when we look at Joseph Smith's, and we know from last week that, that when Joseph Smith has this, this human-like figure on top left, there should be Anubis, but, but they've drawn in the head and they've drawn in a sword or a knife, even though that, that's not what that should be represented there, that, that, that Joseph is imposing on this a human sacrifice. And so we've got Joseph Smith basically, in, a, in effect, claiming that Egyptians were involved in human sacrifice, you know, 2,000 years before BCE, right? And so that's the main contention. And then Robert Rittner would, would then have, you, you, Dr. Rittner, would have opinions about whether in Egypt there were human sacrifices at all or there's any evidence of that. Is that right? This is an absolute debacle of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormon apologetics, defending a book of Scripture that has absolutely no Egyptian authenticity whatsoever. But how lousy John Gee treats the work of Robert Rittner is criminal. But Rittner does get his revenge. <laughs> Let's take a look. Uh, I would be happy to respond. To okay, that. so let's let's hear it. Uh, how how else might Joseph have gotten this wrong? All right. Well, if 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 we're going to deal with the issue of human sacrifice, the the problem with the reasoning being done by John uh, and Carrie Molstein with regard to this is you can't merely argue does human sacrifice exist. Then, the, then you have to also ask. Does human sacrifice exist in the fashion that it's depicted on this picture? Is, in fact, this illustration an actual image of it, which we know is not the case because this is a doctored image. There was no knife. And for those who just didn't catch it last, last week, it, it is more supposed to look like this image on the right. We've pretty much established that 
Joseph and his scribes would have drawn in a human, sacrificing another human when really it's Anubis. And, um, you know, uh, uh, as you described, how would you summarize this image on the right, Dr. Rittner, for those who didn't catch last time? Instead of it being a sacrifice, what it should be, according to the... Yeah, well, actually, Anubis is simply administering uh, embalming materials to for the resurrection, quite literally, of, an, of Osiris on the, not altar, but a funerary bed. And so even though we've already established that they got that wrong, we still have to have this tedious discussion about, you know, is, is it even possible that sacrifices should exist in, in the time frame? So keep going. So now we've got effectively well, one again. Sacrifice is the critical part of the story right. in, the, in the actual text. So we can dismiss the picture as being human sacrifice, but the question is, since it's raised in the text, is that reasonable? Right. And there the, the, you have two questions. First of all, would the Egyptians be practicing human sacrifice, A, and B, would they be sacrificing a human in Ur of the Chaldees, or specifically El Kenna, according to the designation in the text and the designation of the idolatrous priest who was supposedly holding the knife. RFM, would you be able to jump to that section real quick in Abraham and just read to us a verse or two just so that we know where you're reading from in the text and kind of what it's saying? Do you have that handy? Yeah, actually I do. It's Abraham chapter one, of course, which is right after facsimile one, which it's describing. And I will say something that just isn't interesting to me when I listen to the apologists such as Carrie Mulestein speak, sometimes they incorporate elements of Abrahamic lore into the book of Abraham. And they talk about Abraham here being sacrificed because he was preaching against the idols that his father worshipped. And there are some old accounts in the Abrahamic lore about him breaking apart these idols with a hammer. And then that's why he gets in trouble with the local authorities over in Mesopotamia. And he's thrown into the... Um, the fire. But what I note here in the book of Abraham, it actually doesn't say that in our book of Abraham. It really doesn't say exactly why it is that Abraham is being sacrificed. It's implied that it's because he's raising his voice against the idolatrous gods. But what he starts saying in verse seven is this. Therefore, um, what he talks about That he raised up his voice. No, the fathers turned their hearts toward these idolatrous gods. He gives their names, the four names, right? And the five names, if you include Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then verse 7, therefore they turned their hearts to the sacrifice of the heathen and offering up their children unto these dumb idols. Now, please notice that these are thank offerings in the book of Abraham. It even uses that word. So they are so into worshiping these idols that they're going to offer up their children unto them and hearken not unto my voice, but endeavored to take away my life by the hand of the priest of Elkanah. The priest of Elkanah was also the priest of Pharaoh. And it says now, is it, I'm, I'm not going to try and read too much, but that's, that's the thing is that now at this time, it was the custom of the priest of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to offer up upon the altar, which was built in the land of Chaldea, for the offering unto these strange gods, men, women, and children. And so they laid their hands upon Abraham to sacrifice him as a thank offering. That's what it's called in verse 10. 
Even the thank offering of a child did the priest of Pharaoh offer upon the altar. So will the Book of Mormon Central bother to update their information at any way they can? Because so far, they have utterly failed to confirm any kind of historical authenticity in the book of Abraham, chapter 1. But the problem now is their own scholars are betraying them by presenting faith-promoting information that has nothing to do with historical reality. Let's take a look. So they, they're going to offer up Abraham just like they did three other virgins because of their purity and because they would not bow down to worship the gods of wood or of stone. So impliedly, and only impliedly, Abraham is also being offered up as a thank offering, but because he also was so pure that he would refuse to bow down and worship their gods of wood and stone. So that's what it says. Okay, now thank you, RFM. Now, now Dr. Rittner, what's wrong with, uh, you know, with Joseph's writings in the book of Abraham as it relates to what you know about Egyptian history. We will begin to see right now the direct engagement of actual scholarship with Mormon apologetic. I'll let you see if you can spot the difference. It's brutal. It's really, really bad for the Mormons. It is, in fact, the case uh, in my book. Here, you're seeing here not just my dissertation, but this is the published expanded version of it. Uh, for those who want to read my discussion, you can actually do that. Uh, you don't have to take my word for it uh, over this podcast. We actually make our Oriental Institute publications available free. I mean, you can buy the book if you like. I don't get a residual, so it doesn't matter to me whether you buy it or not. Although it is and has been our best-selling book, by the way, uh, in our press run. So this is now in its fifth printing. What's the title of the book for those who are listening? The Mechanics of Ancient Egyptian Magical Practice. Okay. Now, in this book, I am the one who points out the existence of human sacrifice. And I do that. I do that on page 162. If you go to the, my, my point is by, before I forget, is that anyone who wants to read this, you can do a free download of the entire book. You can get the whole book for free uh, digitally. Just go on the Oriental Institute website, look under our publications, look for my name, there it is, you click a button that says download and the PDF is yours. So uh, if you want to know anything more about the details of execration or you want to read more deeply about the issues of the nuances of, of human sacrifice or sacrifice in general, it's all in there. So let's go to page 172, just 162 rather. So here we have, you can see, uh, for those of you who can, who can get the visuals, you can see my section titled Humans. 
So does Book of Mormon Central have anything left at all to try to authenticate just one chapter in the Book of Abraham? We're well aware because we can easily see the comparison when Joseph Smith in the Book of Abraham gets to the creation itself, he simply took what was in Genesis and changed the God to the gods. He was using the Hebrew word Elohim in its plural aspect because he began studying Hebrew. But does this idea of human sacrifice pan out as described in the historical chapter one of the book of Abraham? John Gee and Kerry Mulstein had to really manipulate the historical evidence, and they got caught. And Robert Rittner caught them. You don't fool real Egyptologists. My suggestion to Book of Mormon Central is start educating yourselves with the real stuff. Let me help you. Let's continue. I did was analyze as the core of my dissertation an archaeological site at a Nubian fortress near the second cataract. It's a site known now as Mergissa. This was a new, new, new installation of by a, a fortress in Egyptian's Middle Kingdom. And this was built in a virgin site. There was no local town there. The Egyptians set up a fortress. And whenever you set up a fortress, you would perform execration magic. And what execration, it's a fancy word for cursing your enemies. And you make little dolls, which are the antecedents of voodoo dolls. And the Egyptians, you would then write the name of your enemies on these dolls. And this is sponsored by the state. So the chancellery would actually go through, keep a, a list of all the names of the foreign rulers. And there was a standard boilerplate list of the rulers of the north, south, east, and west. You put them all down there. Every, and every time some new king came to the throne or new chieftain, if they knew about it, they'd change the name in the, on papyrus. And then when you made a new set of figurines, you'd write these on multiple sets of figurines. So any one figurine would have many, many names on it, a section for... Egyptians, a section for people from Palestine, people from Libya, people from Nubia, and even uh, criminal Egyptians. And then you smash them, you stick pins in them, you burn them, and ultimately you bury them. And the thing is that what you do when you bury them is you want them to be placed in an area where there is an old abandoned cemetery. Traditionally, we find these included in cemeteries where the offerings have stopped. And so what's happening from the Egyptian perspective is that the ghosts who live in that cemetery have not been fed thank offerings. They haven't been fed food. Yeah. And so they are angry and hungry. They want their food offerings. And what you were doing is you're saying, here, take these people. And that's what these little voodoo dolls. 
Notice that there is no real actual understanding of the Egyptian historical background knowledge when you study either Kerry Molstein or John Gee. They are warping the materials because they already have the answer. They need to manipulate and warp and weave false evidence together in such a way to confirm Joseph Smith's gross misreading of the ancient Egyptian history and religion. And Rittner's not done yet. This is astonishing. Book of Mormon Central. You boys best wake up. Or four. So that they will be ritually tortured by the spirits as punishment. But they are being given over to the spirits of the dead to affect the curses. So you're asking ghosts to torture these people. And the whole point of this exercise is that it will be magically effective so that the Egyptians do not have to go to war. It's a way of making sure your enemies are peaceful and under your control without actually having to go out and fight them or persecuting them in any way or putting it another way. It's so you don't have to actually kill them. So instead of human sacrifice, the traditional practice, the normal practice, the practice that's celebrated in all the temples is the killing not of human beings, but the killing of little clay figures. I'll bet you never heard that from a Mormon Egyptologist, did you? Unfortunately, no. But there is still even more background and then a total evisceration of the weird Mormon apologetic due to a desire to be faith-promoting. And when you find out the actual historical evidence and you find out the real background from legitimate Egyptology, it doesn't build the faith. It decimates it. Let's take a look. That is what is depicted on temple walls. That is what execration is all about. That is the cursing ritual that's performed in all the fortresses on Egypt's borders and in the temples inside. So on a regular basis, do Egyptians commit human sacrifice? The answer is no. Do they sacrifice images of humans to avoid having to actually kill them on the altar? Yes. So there is some interaction with human sacrifice, and it's a way of getting out of doing it by smashing little clay dolls. Now, if you were on a fortress in Palestine, your fortresses are never going to be in a barren place where there are no surrounding towns, because somewhere very close, there will be a Canaanite town. 
always. If you need to find a graveyard, you can find one. It's not a problem. If you are in Mirgissa, there is desert stretching away for hundreds and hundreds of miles where there are no villages and no towns at all. And so, and there was no town there when the Egyptians. The background that John Gee and Kerry Mulstein completely ignore in order to arrive at the incorrect conclusion that there is human sacrifice and Robert Rittner has their number and he properly takes them to task. So, so what we're doing now is I'm jumping over the rest of my discussion of the human sacrifice. At the, at the site of Mirgissa, there was found a discarded Nubian body. The head was cut off and we have the, the flint blade that was actually used to cut the head. It was lying there by the, the severed skull. I did not participate in the excavations, I should point out, of this site. But what I did do was analyze everything up that was part of this execration ritual, all the pieces, including the body. And I pointed out in that section that is now no longer on the screen, uh, that this was almost certainly a human sacrifice, that a, a person was killed at the time of the execration because the body wasn't buried, it was discarded. It was essentially tossed aside in a sand pit in one place, the head somewhere else. So in this next section I, in burial, I talk about the reason that's important that there be a burial. This is where I explain that in all the cases that we have, typically they are put in a older cemetery for the purpose of its invoking that ghost that I mentioned. Well, Edmund Gissa, you couldn't do that. There's no ghost because there's no older cemetery. There's no angry spirits who haven't received their offerings. So what do you do if you don't have an angry dead person? And you need that for the ceremony. You make one. So what you do is you take a political prisoner and you execute him. So yes, it's human sacrifice, but it's also a political ex execution because this is undoubtedly a captured prisoner uh, on a border fortress where you are fighting Nubians. So how you look at sacrifice vis-a-vis -vis how you look at political execution is a problem. And, and that's the case in wherever you would have it. But here, it is important to note that what you've got is a unique phenomenon. What we are, when you say the Egyptians practice sacrifice using the English present tense, you mean that happens all the time. That is a regular feature. And what I'm saying is we have a case where once Egyptian practiced in the past tense sacrifice. So it is not a normal custom. The normal custom is to avoid it by using smashed dollies and then you put them in an old graveyard. Here, they used smashed dollies and they had to make a graveyard. That is why I am not contradicting myself. It is what I explained in livid detail within the body of my dissertation, which John has said somehow contradicts itself. Read it for yourself, it's free. That's my advice to Book of Mormon Central. You need to actually do some real learning and some real study 
instead of just following along with the faith-promoting pap and pablum that your own scholars are misleading you with, and in rather what appears to be unethical ways. But Robert Rittner is not finished yet. Let's take another look at another slide. So and so on the podcast when when John Gee and Hannah Syriac basically say that 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 in fact human sacrifice was a practice in Egypt, uh, you know, seventeen hundred years before you know BCE, and that Joseph Smith must have been inspired by God because he got that right. And you, Dr. Robert Ridner, should know that best because in your own dissertation, you talk about uh, Egyptian sacrifice. Your response is what? Not in Egypt, in Nubia, not in Syria, not in Elkena, if there is an Elkena, which is problematic in and of itself. And we can talk about Elkena in a moment when we get to fact simile three. Right. And not as a practice, right? Not as a normative. And then we begin to learn a little bit more. Let's take another look. And just to come in here and emphasize what I read in chapter one, verse eight of the book of Abraham. It does state it was a common practice there. It says, now at this time, it was the custom of the priests of Pharaoh to offer up upon the altar men, women, and children to their strange gods. It's also important to notice that what's being, what's being done here when you're killing this Nubian prisoner, uh, you are not actually offering him to anybody. Right? To what gods? He's not being killed as an offering to gods. He's being killed to make him into a ghost. So this, this is not being done on an altar to any god. This is in a pit in the desert, not in a temple, not in a cult setting of a temple with priests around. There are priests around who are invoking this, but they're not doing it in front of images of gods. So the Nubian is not being sacrificed to anyone. He's being sacrificed for the purpose of making an angry dead man. So it is not the procedure that's being described. It's not like you have a statue of Osiris and you were killing this man in front of him or a statue of the idolatrous god of Elkina, because no statue of a god is there. So it is completely incorrect in context, not for the same purpose. It's not as an offering, but is instead to make someone unhappy. It's a non-thank offering. It's to tick someone off so that he will then torture the names of the spirits that are, all, that are written on the voodoo dolls. So the mechanism is 100% the opposite. And Guy knows that because, of course, I was his teacher and I taught him what execration magic was. And he 
because Gee is in such a hurry to confirm Joseph Smith's view on the book of Abraham, he reads too fast through his own teacher's materials and he gets it completely wrong. We're not done yet. Let's have a look at another clip. He should know better. Well, I just want to add here, because I know we want to get the facsimile too, John. Yeah. But um, the reason this strikes me with such force is that I listened to this interview from last week, and anybody can listen to it. And it was obvious that John Gee was making fun at your expense, Dr. Rittner. He even giggles about it, along with the interviewer, about how ridiculous you are that you say that the, the Egyptians did practice did practice human sacrifice in your dissertation, but now you're saying the opposite with the suggestion that the only reason you're saying the opposite now is because you're just trying to tear down the book of Abraham, no matter what you have to do to do it. Well, what I've had to say about sacrifice has nothing to do with the book of Abraham. Right. I, we, can, we can talk about at some point how I was brought into the book of Abraham situation, but that's another, that's another question. We will. And I just want to underscore one other thing here, John, and I apologize. No, don't apologize. I love it. That's why you're here, buddy. Okay. Well, Carrie Muelstein and John Gee, but especially Carrie Muelstein's writings, he has gone to great length to say publicly and in writing in the Ensign and also in videotapes that are available on the internet in support of the book of Abraham, that the description of human sacrifice in the book of Abraham is exactly the way all Egyptologists, or at least the majority of Egyptologists, his colleagues, understand the way the Egyptians used to practice human sacrifice. He says 20 years ago when he got involved in this, no, uh, it was different. People didn't understand about human sacrifice then, but that Kerry Muelstein has almost single-handedly led the Light Brigade into changing the opinion of all Egyptologists to revolutionize the idea and that now all Egyptologists understand that the way the book of Abraham describes human sacrifice in Egypt is exactly the way it was practiced among the ancient Egyptians. Is that statement correct, Dr. Rittner? <laughs> Never, ever trust what a Mormon apologist says. Book of Mormon Central, pay attention. Your hero is getting slain. Coming right up. Let's take a look. This is truly justifiably brutal. Well, <clears throat> I'll try to be as concise as I can be on, on this. Um, there... Kerry wrote his dissertation on this very topic, and he was very careful to describe these as political executions rather than human sacrifices. So he walked a careful line that, that passed muster with Egyptologists. He did not prove that there was human sacrifice. He, in fact, just pointed these out as being human, as, as being political execution. 
You have examples of a text, which John Gee also references in this podcast, of a sila of King Neferhotep of the Middle Kingdom, in which, it is, which boundaries are being set up for a temple precinct. And it is said that anyone who trespasses, any, any uh, bureaucrat who tra- or priest who trespasses into this estate and would attempt to take away some of its assets would be burnt. Now, that is a statement of what would happen for committing a crime if you invade the temple precinct and plunder its resources, you will be burned. It's a death penalty for committing a crime. This is not for failing to worship the gods or failing to respect what a deity or a ritual. It's if you commit a crime, there will be capital punishment. That is not sacrifice. And yet this is the kind of example they want to choose. This is like saying, if you kill someone and we hang you for it, it's a human sacrifice. If that's the way you want to understand it, fine. Any execution could be taken in a religious way and given a connotation. And we execute people now. Is that human sacrifice? For some, you would say yes. But it's a question of, is this how the Egyptians are understanding it? And the answer is certainly not. They're putting, to be, they're putting to death for, for criminal purposes. There is also a recently excavated area in the Delta, the northern part of Egypt, during the time of political turmoil where a, a large number of bodies have turned up that are, again, probably the result of warfare. It's been argued to be a massacre, a, a slaughter of captives, but that's in warfare. Is that human sacrifice? I don't think so. During the course of war, people are killed. Yes, you can say that's to the benefit of a deity or the, or the country, but that is not what is typically understood as human sacrifice. It's military activity. So all of the examples that they like to point to that are so-called recent, recent ones are in fact either criminal publish, punishment or military activity. It's not a question of human sacrifice on an altar. There's no altar that's been found at this site in the Delta. There's no altar that is found in Mirgissa. There is no altar found adjacent to the Neferhotep stela. So all of that is smoke and mirrors and confusion of terms and attempting to juggle anything in order to make it all make sense. But the bigger question is, so what if the Egyptians practiced human sacrifice? Would the Egyptians have practiced human sacrifice in North Syria, where they didn't have any physical control? Would they have looked like that on that illustration, which we know is doctored and therefore cannot be an illustration of it? So it's not a question of finding one little thing that might work. You have to make all the pieces fit. And that is the continual problem with the apologists is they find one small aspect, which if you squint your eyes and look you know, slightly to the left, you can say, well, it sort of looks like this, but then it doesn't fit the entire picture because you're asked to ignore all of that. And you can't ignore all of it. If, it's, if the story is true, then all parts of it have to be true, not just 
one aspect of one picture or, or two lines in the text. And fail to do is present a complete picture. If you don't show all your work and explain all the details, then you cannot have a defense. And they never do that. And the reason is they don't have the facts. And no amount of, no amount of apologetics until the end of the universe will produce facts that never were and don't exist. Notice that Dr. Robert Rittner definitely understands and knows the apologists' arguments, but they don't grasp his. Let's take a look at another clip. Here it is. The book of the, that true? The answer is no. Okay, because I was going to say the book of Abraham says that it was the custom among the Egyptians to sacrifice people for refusing to worship their gods. There is no evidence of that ever in any in any context. On the on the contrary, the Egyptians don't care what gods you worship, and they adopt every single deity, including Yahweh. The most popular deity in the Greek in the, the, the Greek period, Egyptian magical papyri is Yao, which is just a different writing of Yahweh. The Egyptians invoke Apollo, Diana, Ereshkigal from Mesopotamia, uh, Reshep from Syria, Baal. The Egyptians add gods; they don't take any away. Never. Never do they persecute you for worshiping, uh, for not worshiping their God. There is one period in Egyptian history, a monotheistic period under King Akhenaten, where he persecutes all the God except his favorite sun disk. But that's, that's a unique period. The Egyptians, as soon as he was dead, that movement stopped. And what, and what year would that have been approximately, Dr. Ridner? Uh, 1300s BC. Okay. And, and again, we have Abraham, if he even lived, somewhere between 1700 and 2000 BCE, so long before. Yeah. So, Book of Mormon Central, you've got your work cut out for you because everything you've produced in both of your videos so far, I have found nothing convincing at all. And I found a lot that is very, very disturbing, unscholarly, downright, close to unethical, and definitely pseudo-scholarship. That's not worth putting out on YouTube to show who the lazy learners are and who the real scholars are. Let's take one more look. At one more clip. I, I understand Kerry has changed his mind and his approach going now that his dissertation is published and he doesn't have to go through peer review. <laughs> he, he can he can speak of human sacrifice all he likes. But if but if if he were to if Guy or to Milstein were to make these claims about human sacrifice in this time period in front of colleagues such as yourself, what, what would the reaction be of the colleagues? Disbelief and disagreement. Yeah. Universal. 
And the only reason I'm making such a big deal about it here is because both John Gee and Carrie Muelstein have chosen to make such a big deal about it in their apologetic writings. Because when you look at it from the one side, if the ancient Egyptians did practice human sacrifice, which I understand they did not, Dr. Rittner, contrary Gee and Muelstein, but if they had, it's not a huge support for the book of Abraham. I mean, a lot of different cultures practice human sacrifice. The problem is, is that because the book of Abraham specifically says they did practice human sacrifice and that Abraham was on the receiving end of one of those human sacrifice attempts, that if the ancient Egyptians did not practice human sacrifice, then it becomes a huge obstacle to the truth of the book of Abraham. That's why they have to go there, I think. Well, sacrifice is critical to the story of Abraham in the Bible. His papyrus is the, his way in. It is his story. It has to be based on the Egyptian papyrus, which he bought. So what he has done is he's coupled the sacrificial story coming from the Bible with the piece of papyrus, which he bought. And so then you have to have sacrifice in Egypt. It's the theme of Abraham merged with the merchandise he had. There's your story. There's your story. Book of Mormon Central, my advice is you shape up or shut up because you're not doing yourselves any favors whatsoever by producing pap and pablum and tripe in a faith-promoting effort to sustain a false narrative. Thanks for watching my response video. I have a lot more I'll respond to. Have a great night.